Let's open our Bibles this morning to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. This is the precious Word of God. Amen. It ought to be more valuable to you in your estimation than thousands of gold and silver. Right. It ought to be sweeter to your taste than honey and the honeycomb. Yes. And by these words, we are warned. Right. I want to read to you in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Amen. Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. Go to now, when you think that you can make plans for the future without totally submitting it to God. For what is your life? It is even a vapor. Your life is a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live. Forget going anywhere. Forget making anything. If the Lord will, we shall live. If the Lord will, Because your life is in the hand of God, and he can withhold and take away that breath at any time. For what is your life? I want to warn you again this morning, and though I feel like I am alone in the entire universe, when I look around and listen to what's going on in our country, and when I look at some of you and see a lack of concern for the future, and that is meeting God. I want to warn again, what is your life? What is your life? Is it planning to go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain? Is it to stay in this city and to buy and sell and get gain? Is it even to live next year? All of that must be submitted to the will of God. My message this morning is so simple, but I can't leave it because it doesn't matter. Anything else that I were to preach, if you are not warned to set your heart and your affection for meeting God, everything else that I could preach is vanity and a waste of time. That's why I don't do it. That's why I am still wanting to warn you in yet a different way about what your life is. For what is your life? It's nothing. All of us together are less than nothing, as we read this morning in Psalm 62. 
It's so simple, but I cannot stop reminding you. And I'm so thankful that God had Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, in Second Peter chapter 1 say, as long as I am in this tabernacle, I am not going to stop reminding you, even though you be established in the present truth. Amen. And I'm comforted by that, because that's all I want to do this morning, is to remind you, but I hope, and, I, and I'm going to pray, that God will convict your hearts by what I want to say to you this morning. It's a new year that's coming up. It's a time for natural men to think, to reflect, and to think about their lives. I hope that we'll do that. I'm giving it to you a little early so that you have a few extra days to think about your life. True love is not making you happy. True love is telling you the truth. And the truth is, your life is nothing. And that we're going to meet God. Heavenly Father, in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have appointed to be the judge of the quick and the dead, I pray for every soul that is here that is one of yours, that you will convict and convince, convert, and lead them, O Lord, to humble themselves before thee, that we might know that our life is lost in thee, and that we might lose it for thee, and that we might seek thee with our whole life, for the rest of our life. Lord, have mercy upon us. We are less than nothing combined. We need divine grace and power to open our eyes to the truth and our ears to hear it and our hearts to understand it. And most of all, O Lord, for our souls to live it. Help us. Heavenly Father, bless your word and sanctify your scriptures. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our whole nation and our lives tend to get all wrapped up in what we're planning to do. And here we have a warning from God that those plans are foolishly made and foolishly spoken because you don't even know what your life is. Your life is a vapor. It's a here for a little while and it vanishes away. You know, I'm creating vapor right now as I'm talking to you and you can't even see it. It wouldn't be much different if it were 30 degrees in here and you could see a little bit of the vapor. It still just vanishes away. That's our life. There's really nothing to it, and it disappears quickly. And I have to warn you about that again, because the silence out there is deafening to me. The silence outside this room, no one, no one warning people about the brevity of life and facing God and His Son Jesus Christ as a judge with eternal matters at stake. No one. And everybody goes on with their merry little plans. Well, if we can do this, then we'll have that. And I need to do this and just plan, plan, plan. And what I'm saying this morning does not condemn proper planning. But I'm not going to say that again. If you're so foolish as to get confused, then I've probably already wasted my prayer on you. That's ridiculous. There is a place for proper planning way down in the basement, because the whole structure of the house of your life should be to prepare yourself to meet God. 
What is your life? I want you to ask yourselves this morning, what is your life? What is my life? What is your life? What is its purpose? What is its goals? What is its priority? What's its emphasis? Why do you live? Why do you want to live in the year 2001? What are you going to do with the year if the Lord were to give you that whole year? Instead of thinking about buying and selling and getting gain, moving to a house, getting a ca- another car, or the children passing another grade in school, whoop-de-doo, big deal. What about meeting God? And how much are we living for Him? How much do we wait upon Him as we read that? How much do we pour out our souls to Him as we read in Psalm 62? Why isn't anyone saying anything about it? There is, we live in an information explosion with kilobytes and megabytes and gigabytes and I'm sure there's some more bytes that I don't know about yet. I'll learn them one of these days because I'll have to have those bytes at home in order to be able to open up some checkbook balancing program. But it's, the amount of information is just exploding and no one says anything. You know I've said this many times to you. You know, I scour the newspaper and magazines and the internet looking for someone other than a few lost voices of Baptist preachers warning about the shortness of life and the coming judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one's saying anything. The world is rushing to and fro. My son has a restaurant near Haywood Mall. The city was taken by madness. It is right now. The mall opened at 8 o'clock this morning. Can you believe that? Open at 8 o'clock for these procrastinating bail worshippers to get out there to buy their presents. And it's a mad rush. We, we, he has a business right in the middle of it. They're rushing to and fro and no one's stopping to think about what a waste of time. Where's the real focus should be? on the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that our life is so short and it's rushing away with rapidity that cannot be understood but by grace. Right. Only when you get older do you realize, wow, where'd my life go? It goes so fast. All you young children, we have such a young church for the most part. I want to warn you, what is your life? The Bible says, for what is your life? It's a question there in the middle of that 14th verse. For what is your life? What is your life? You say, I'm disappointed in my life because I'm not making enough. Oh, so I need to ask you, for what is your life? I'm disappointed with my life because my family hasn't turned out the way that I thought it would. Oh, you're kidding me. For what is your life? My marriage isn't making me as happy as I thought it would. For what is your life? Your life isn't marriage. Your life isn't children. Your life isn't family. Your life isn't business. Your life isn't retirement. Your life isn't money. I live in a subdivision where there's more money spent on maintaining the yards than most Americans spend for maintaining a home. By maintaining, I mean their mortgage payment included. What is your life? We live in a sick country, and brethren, I fear, lest it infect all of us. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. He took some dust, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, and that's where you came from. Right. You are nothing but a little bunch of dust. God scraped up with his hands, 
folded it into a ball, and breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, and you became a living soul. And that's how you came here. And you weren't, and I, I, I know, I know, I've asked this before, but I, I never want you to forget these thoughts. He didn't ask you if you wanted to come here. The most dominating, intimidating, authoritative, sovereign choice in the universe. I'm going to give you existence, and then I'm going to judge you for your sins. And you can't turn it off. For what is your life? It is a brief period of time that God's given you here in this world to humble yourself before him and to seek his face with all that you are and have. And we have so much within us and so much without us and so much in the, in the devil who is trying to keep us from ever asking the question for what is your life. Right. Because he is successful if our life gets filled enough with activities to where we never ask the question for what is your life. And then all of a sudden it's over and he can say another victory because that man never pleased the Lord Jesus Christ. That man went and got promotions. That man went and moved into a bigger home every seven years on average. That's the average mortgage in the United States. He did this and he did that, but all of a sudden he died and he never lived for the Lord Jesus Christ like he should have. So I took another one away from serving my great enemy, Jesus of Nazareth. We have three enemies keeping us from our duties. Every living soul since then has been formed the very same way. God has breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Man is so frail because his breath is in his nostrils. How long are you going to live? For, we're, asking, we're answering the question. We're going to answer it this morning. For what is your life? 70 or 80 years. That's all it is. Very short. Psalm 90 and verse 10 tells us that. Look at Psalm 89 with me. Let's look at a few verses about how wise men describe life as being very short. Psalm 89. A young person can't understand what I'm saying except by grace. As we get older, we understand it better that it flees so rapidly. Psalm 89, verse 47, David said, Remember how short my time is. Psalm 89, 47, Remember how short my time is. Wherefore hast thou made all men in vain? It's so short that life is basically vain. It's just a blip. And it's over. It's vapor. It's nothing. And it's gone. That's your life. For what is your life? You need to learn how to answer it with the Word of God. It's very short. It's so short that it appears that all men are in vain. We read this morning in James 4 where we started that it's a vapor. Just a little bit of moisture in the air that quickly dissipates and it's gone. And if you were to walk up to that moisture while you could still see it, because it's only there for a second, and you were to punch it, there's nothing there. It's all vanity. What a great picture for us of what our life is like. In Psalm 90 and verse 9, which is close at hand there, I read, For all our days are passed away. In thy wrath we spend our years as a tale that is told. It's like a little story. Someone tells a little story, and pretty soon they, they start it, and then they end it. It's over. Our whole life is like a little story that's being told. 
Look in the book of Job. Old Job, he had some time to think about it, didn't he? Because his life was changed dramatically. And do you know what? You've heard me say it before. If we were to have a recession, which some economists say we've already entered, but if we were to have a recession or depression, it would help people think about their lives. Because all of a sudden, they'd find themselves in a little bit of trouble. And incomes wouldn't be rising and housing values wouldn't be rising. They'd be going south. Then you have a little bit more to think about. (laughs) Whoa, I thought my life was just moving into that other subdivision in the better part of town, and now it's survival. And there's a little bit more thinking of the Lord. But in Job chapter 7, because all of Job's things were taken away, here are a few expressions we have in the book of Job. Job 7 verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Anyone ever seen a weaver's shuttle? Those looms as they're putting, making cloth by throwing threads against one another and interweaving those threads, they are moving fast. Now this is the textile capital of the world, or it used to be. Some of you that are from this city know about weaver's shuttles. They move fast. A sewing machine, for those of you who haven't seen a weaver's shuttle, when it's operating at full speed, that needle is moving up and down very quickly. Job said life is like that in chapter 7 and verse 6. How about chapter 9 and verse 25? Job 9, 25, we're answering the question, for what is your life? We're answering right now that it's short. It's short. I know you think your sermon's not even short. My life's got to be long. You're wrong. You're wrong. My sermon will be relatively short, and life is very short. Job 9, 25, now my days are swifter than a post. What's a post? We can't say that about the United States postal system, but they could in these days. My days are swifter than a post. Pony Express, who were the fa- what were the fastest riders in all of America But those special men that were chosen, the special horses that were chosen, and the fresh horses they were given every few miles to get communication across the uncivilized, the unpopulated West. A post. In these days they had couriers that were the equivalent of our long-distance runners that would carry letters and could run for great extended periods of time. But they were fast. And so, Job, here we have the expression, my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. When an eagle has gone up to a half a mile in height and spots its prey and goes into a dive, ever read about some of the speeds they achieve in a dive? Wow! 150 miles an hour? 125 miles an hour? As swift as that eagle, Job is saying life is over. The Bible also describes life as a handbreadth. Remember, about four inches wide and it's gone. It, it describes life in several places in the Psalms as a shadow. Remember, you've seen a shadow in your yard and before you know it, it's all the way across the yard. And you couldn't keep up with it if you had to once the afternoon sun begins to set. It's like grass. The Bible says that we grow up like grass. We're beautiful in the morning. The sun comes out, it's cut down, it withers, and it's thrown into the furnace that night. We're like grass, it's over. Life is short, brethren. So, for what is your life? For what is your life? 
It's very short, and you don't know its future. That's why to make plans about tomorrow, as the priority in your life is so vain and foolish and wrong, in fact, all such boastings are evil, according to James chapter 4. Brethren, we're frail. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. For what is your life? What has your life been in the year 2000? And if the Lord tarries, what will your life be in 2001? My hope is that it will be a life dedicated, sold out to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not with your spouse. Not with your children. Not with your job. Not with your hobbies. Sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. After that, all other relationships enter into the picture. And I hope that that is our goal. That's what I'm preaching for this morning. I'll tell you right now, it's very simple. It is so simple that there's only one thing that you live for, and it's to know Jesus Christ and to know Him better. That's all. Can you get that? See how simple that is? You've got the whole sermon. Should I quit? If you'd promised me you've got the message, I'd quit right now. For what is your life? Is it a sold-out, committed pursuit of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ? Why should I preach anything else but that? Until we're all doing that. Then we can find out some more of the details of what Christ wants from us. But until then, we've got to be committed that our life is nothing. And so I want to show you how short it is. It's like a weaver's shuttle and it's gone. I can't even move my arm as fast as a weaver's shuttle. I want you to see in Isaiah 2 and verse 22, I want you to see how frail your life is. Because now I have to deal with the foolish minds in here that will think, he said 70 or 80, let's average that at 75. Since I'm only 19 today, then that gives me 55, 56 years. Or since I'm 40 today, that gives me 40 or 35 years. We're frail, which means that today might be the last day. Therefore, we don't plan about going into such and such a city and continuing there a year because you don't know that you're going to continue a year. Brethren, you don't know that you're going to continue tomorrow. So today is the day of salvation. Today, we seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we confess our sins. Today, we humble ourselves. Today, we tell Him, I am nothing. I have nothing. You are everything. Today. But I want to show you. Isaiah 2 and verse 22 says, Cease ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? Listen to that verse. Do you know how that verse right there tells you that you are nothing? Do you, do you know if I walk over to you and just pinch this little doorway shut right here, it's all over? Your breath is in your nostrils. Go ahead. Hold your nose shut, and I'll wait 90 seconds until you fall out of your chair. That's how... But men pride themselves on their great accomplishments and their great expectations and their plans. But yet, his breath is in his nostrils. Cease ye from man. Get away from him. He's so frail. He's so fragile. How do we even account for him? All it takes is this, and all, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your precious memories, how they linger, they wouldn't linger at all if I just pinched the little doorway to your nostrils shut. That is how frail we are. 
We read this morning that surely all men, high and low degree, put together in a balance are less than nothing. Man at his best state, we read a couple weeks ago, altogether vanity. At his best state, man at his very best is altogether vanity. Job 14 and verse 1, Job said, Man born of a woman is full of trouble in a few days. Job chapter 14 and verse 1, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. That's your life. And do you know what the wise man would tell us? You say, well, if I just had, what do you want to make something out of your life? If I just had some more capital, I could make something out of life. There was a man that was given all the capital. If I just had some better looks, I could make something out of life and I could be happy with life. There was a man that had all the looks. If I was just smarter, so that wherever I went, I could outthink anyone that was there, I could make something out of life. Especially in America, with all of its opportunities, if I was just smarter, there was a man that had all the brains. If I just had a few more opportunities, there was a man that had all the opportunities because he was king. Do you all know who I'm speaking about? I'm speaking about Solomon. And Solomon, when he applied himself to all of it, he had all the looks, he had all the wealth, he had all the wisdom, and he had all the opportunity. And yet when he exercised himself to find out what the purpose of man was, he said, it is all vanity and vexation of spirit. He built things. He entertained himself. He got wise and learned things. He said, forget wisdom. Let me lay here and have jesters fool me. He tried it all. And he said, it's all vanity. And guess what? The most money that you'll ever make in this entire life wouldn't even go in his piggy bank. So what are you going to do? And I'm sorry, I don't mean to hurt your feelings this morning, but you're ugly compared to Solomon. So what are you, so am I, what are we going to do? And wisdom, the man, listen, the man could just sit down, you could walk up to him and say, talk about trees. This is biblical. This is 1 Kings chapter 3 if you need to go find it. Talk about trees. And Solomon could sit there and talk about trees and entertain you talking about trees because he knew all about trees. Now he had wisdom, that's my point. He had it all. You don't have it. You don't have his wisdom. You don't have his looks. You don't have his money. So guess what? You better listen to him. He tried it all and he said it's all vanity. Do you really believe that? Everything out there is vanity. When you lay in that pretty little box with the little handrails on the side, on the little satin pillows, and they pull the little satin sheet up around your chinny-chin-chin so we can't see your ugly, decaying, stinking body, when you lay there, life is vanity. And guess what? While you are living it, it's a vexation of spirit. Because it's always frustrating because it never turns out the way you had hoped, planned, expected, or wanted it to. That's what the wise man said. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. And that's applying all the blessings that God gave him to find out the purpose of man under the sun. And brother, then you get to die. Wow. You mean it's all vanity and vexation of spirit and then we have to die? That's right. 
There's an expression that I'll not say, but I hope that all of you can remember it. It's on a bumper sticker. Life is vanity and vexation of spirit, and then you die. And you know what the Bible says, though? It says that it is appointed to men once to die, but we just don't get to end it all there. And after this, the judgment. I know you know these things, brethren, but I don't know that you really know them. Because we keep pounding the pavement and we keep making the plans and we keep doing this and doing that and thinking, well, if I could just be happier with my spouse and if I could just, if my children would just obey a little bit more, I'd be happier. And if, if I could just get that promotion, then I'd be content. No, you will not be. Right. You will not be. If all those things were to happen tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, at 7.05, you'd still be unhappy. Life is vain. For what is your life? For what is your life? We live a vain life. It vexes us. We then die, and then we go to judgment. Wow, what a rosy prospect. What a rosy future. Are you excited this morning? But I get to tell you that you came into this world without your permission, and that you have to live a life of vanity and vexation of spirit, and then you get to die very quickly, and your life goes by before you can even figure it out, and it's over. Then you die, and you're judged by God. That's the truth. And brethren, I thank God for His mercy that He sent this to me, and He sent grace into my heart that I want to read it and know it, and that I fear Him, and that I fear this coming day, and that I want to warn you. It's by grace, because the whole world is rushing, rushing, rushing. I know I told you that illustration, but that's what's in my head. I told you a couple weeks ago. They're on a treadmill. They're on a treadmill, and in front of them is earthly happiness, success, and fulfillment. And they're reaching, they're reaching, and they're reaching for it. And they can't get it, so they reach down at the control panel of their treadmill and ratchet it up a few miles per hour. And they're going faster and faster. They can barely keep their balance. And they're reaching. And they look over at their neighbors who are in the same race. And they see a neighbor that from their vantage point looks like the neighbor is touching success and happiness. So they ratchet theirs up more because they can't let their neighbor get there before they do. And they, they ratchet up that pace until their life is full of activities and ambitions. And they reach, reach, reach. And they slip. And the thing shoots them off the end into hell. The treadmill. And Hollywood is happy. And Fifth Avenue advertising is happy. And Satan is happy. And the whole world is happy. Because you've just wasted your little short opportunity called life in this foolish, vain, vexing... Do you know how vexing it is to be running faster than you can run? Go get on a treadmill and crank it up faster than you can run. You'll find out how vexing it is. Your lungs are saying, I don't belong at this pace. And you're reaching. It's always vexing. And you can never, you never touch it. You never touch it. And you're gone. Brethren, I'm, that's all I'm living with these days. It's all I have for you. If you want something spectacular out of the book of Ezekiel or from some chapter in Revelation, then get yourself another pastor or go somewhere else. Because that's all I've got for you. Because until we humble ourselves and realize that our lives are vain, and we get Jesus Christ as the central figure, purpose, goal, portion in everything, we're lost. Who cares about opening up some... Oh, take them alive. 
some text from 2 Kings 10.14. Let me open that up to you. We don't need that. We need to make war against all these distractions that keep speeding up the treadmill. Or what you have out in front of you. There should be nothing out in front of you. The thing should be set on a good walking pace because it says walk. And you shouldn't be looking at that. You should be looking at the Lord. Waiting for Him to come and get us. To wait for His Son Jesus from heaven is the whole purpose of why the New Testament exists. is to tell us to wait for His Son from heaven. Are you waiting on the Lord? Have you taught yourself to wait, brethren? Every little trivial piece of information is coming our way today. This information explosion is crushing. Every little bit of economic data that you want. What do you want to know? It's there. Do you want to know how much the citizens of Saudi Arabia spend on chocolate? You got it. Every The newspapers are filled with all this trivial information that maybe the nation's turning over into a recession. Maybe drinking coffee is hazardous to your health. Maybe putting babies in shoulder harnesses is hazardous to their health. Maybe that some vehicles, if they're hit in the back at 140 miles an hour, explode on impact. Maybe that one airline has more accidents than another airline. Maybe if your kids aren't put in the best schools, they'll only get an 800 on the SAT. Maybe. On and on it goes. All this data. Everybody's worried about all these little things like, I'll get skin cancer. I'll get a little pudgy. Yes, I am. All these bad things they're worried about. On and on and on it goes. All the warnings out there about all these little insignificant things. Who gives a rip about any of it? If you're wise, you're going to say in your heart, who gives a rip about any of it? All that matters is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to me during my lifetime and saved my soul so that I am not blinded to these eternal thoughts and that all I can see is this life, that Jesus Christ came and regenerated me enough that I can even hear this without hating him. That's a blessing, brethren, because what I'm saying and the way I say it, of course, is ugly, but the, what I'm saying is ugly too, unless God has saved you. Amen. Because there's something other than this life. And while we're in this life, oh, I gotta get to my punchline right now. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if you're living one degree off of that verse, you ain't living. Amen. For to me to live, is Christ, and to die is gain. And if you say to me right now, I'm listening, my eyes are open, but I don't really know what you're saying, I don't really know Christ that way, then do you know what you need to do today and tomorrow? Repent and get down on your knees and seek Him, because He will be found if you seek Him. That's the whole purpose for your life, and that's the purpose of this sermon is what will you do if you feel that he's not as real to you as he should be? Then seek him. And if you say to me, but I don't have time today, I'll get to it tomorrow, you've missed the whole point. Right. The papers are, everything is information 
about how we wouldn't want our children to score less than 1,200 on the SAT. I mean, bruh, if they score 1199, we've just, we've just, we've, we're, we're horrible parents. They only scored 1199. They could have got a 1200 if we'd have just sent them to better schools and done a little bit more work with them at home on their homework. Who cares? Give me an illiterate. Give me one of your children illiterate that has to go dig ditches. But he loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Consistently, day by day, hates sin in this world and lives to see Jesus Christ come back to earth and praises him from his heart and is thankful for everything that he has. And I'll show you a successful man. Who cares if he can read? Most of the men in the history of the world couldn't read. Of course you know that I mean that if you have time to waste, teach them how to read. But the primary goal in life is to seek Jesus Christ. But all of the warnings about all of these little problems and all the data to help save us from these things that are going to happen to us, but no one's telling us and warning us that we're going to face the Lord Jesus Christ angry. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, is the warning of Psalm 2. The whole duty of man, you all know it. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and it says it's to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And it tells us why. For, we always always get the 13th verse. Do you know what's stuck there in the 14th verse? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's the whole duty of man. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I can conclude this safely. I'm preaching you absolute truth this morning. It cannot be gainsaid by anyone. The whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. That has got to be our constant daily priority. That doesn't mean we pray before dinner. That doesn't mean we go to church on Sunday. That isn't it. That's not letting the conclusion of the whole matter be fearing God and keeping his commandments. It's a whole life process. 168 hours a week, we are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. We go to bed thinking about him. We wake up thinking about him. Alike at work in prayer to Jesus, I repair. Now do you understand why those words meant so much to me this morning? Because that's how we're supposed to live. And even in that song... May Jesus Christ be praised. There was a verse in there that in the middle of the night when the balmy sleep leaves your eyes, what are you thinking about? Are you still praying for mercy? God be merciful to me, a sinner, in the middle of the night in your sleep. God made us for himself, brethren. We are not our own. He's made all things for his own pleasure. We need to fulfill that pleasure or we are going to be judged. We shall fulfill that pleasure one way or another. But what I mean is we should choose to do it actively. God has saved us to bring forth good works for his glory. He hasn't saved us because he felt sorry for us. He saved us so that he could be praised by our lives here in this world. He wants us to show forth what grace can do in our hearts. Are we going to let that grace be bestowed upon us in vain? Or are we going to live for him? You know, you know so many of these verses. We must love the Lord God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. What else do you love? There isn't a place for it. 
But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We have one supreme priority, and that's to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what, what are you worrying about money for? What, what are you worrying about food? Did you know how little a man can live on? Do you know how little food a man can live on? You could work at the lowest paying job in Greenville one hour a day and live in a bag someplace. And I'm, ex- I'm making that as an, an example of a, an extreme example. But I don't see any sacrifices at all. I see very few sacrifices being made to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And all it tells me is a, that a heart is cold and dead toward him. Whether it's ever been born again, there's no evidence. Because you're here this morning, that's no evidence of eternal life. Because you're here every Sunday is no evidence of eternal life. Because you can memorize verses is no evidence of eternal life. Because I can preach the verses is no evidence of eternal life. The only evidence of eternal life is faith, virtue, knowledge, godliness, brotherly kindness, increasing and abounding in our lives. Spiritually mindedness. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And what does it say about those people? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Show me a person walking after the Spirit, and I'll show you a person that's been saved. Isn't the Lord worthy of all this? Amen. Let's, is he your creator? Amen. Is he your creator? Yes. Let's say he's nothing else. He is just your creator. Should you live for him? If he scraped up a little bit of dust and breathed into your nostrils the breath of life and he created you, is that enough? Shouldn't that be enough for you to live for him for the rest of your life? Every day, creator God, I love you and I thank you for life. Forgive me wherever I have disappointed you in creating me. Bless me this day to honor you, O creator God, for all that you have done for me. Thou art worthy, O Creator God, because Thou hast created all things by Thyself and for Thy pleasure. They are and were created. Isn't that enough? Amen. He isn't just your Creator. Right. He's also your God, your personal divine being, my Lord and my God. He's not just your Creator and your God. He's your Preserver. Any of you ever been in tough spots before? Did he save you out of them? Has he preserved you alive some 40, 50, 70, 80, whatever you feel like this morning years? Has he preserved you alive? He's your preserver. He's a judge. What if we didn't look at anything else but he's a judge? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As a judge, would it be enough to live your whole life for him? School. What are they doing that for? So they can spend the next 40 years making some money that they're not going to take with them when they go? My point is the emphasis. So much time. So much wasted time. Anybody can figure out that 20 years times six and a half hours a day with what the children come out of our schools graduating with and the the understanding and wisdom that they have means that 19 and a half years were wasted. But 20 years it took to accumulate a little bit of reading, writing, and arithmetic. And today's graduates don't have very much of that. But 20 years, 20 years for what? 
You know what we're talking about? We're talking about eternity. The greatest events that are coming in our lives, and no one's doing anything about them. But they're spending 20 years to get some little piece of paper that's not you're not going to take with you when, when you tell God, I got a master's degree. I want to tell you something about meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to tell him. He's going to tell you. What if he was just judge, but nobody? When someone's going to trial, we've got a football player in the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, who had his pregnant girlfriend killed. He's on trial right now. You ought to see him sitting there in, in court. I mean, he's got the very finest suit and the most conservative tie on, and they've nicked his hair right down near the scalp, and he looks so dignified and sober. See, they're preparing because they're meeting a judge. Now, that's a bad case, but they're really working on it. But see, that bad case about meeting a man who's going to sit in a black robe and maybe raise a hammer and say, the death penalty, and bring it down, that's only killing the body. Right. Who cares? I put that in the same category with wasting 20 years in school. Who cares? Because Jesus, my Savior and Judge, said, Fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. I'll forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, and I think this is reasonable is what he was saying, fear him. Right. Jesus can kill your body and throw your soul into hell, and he will. What are we doing for him if we just thought about him as judge? But he's not just a judge, brethren. He's a savior. Right. He's a savior. He is a savior, and not only is he a savior, he is a friend. Right. He is the friend of sinners. He's a glorious savior. This week with my family, this week with my son-in-law, I tried to provoke them with Romans chapter 5, that glorious chapter that shows that Jesus Christ was set up from everlasting as our eternal, as our covenant head to represent us and to stand in, in our place for us. You know, we had a covenant head in Adam, and he sinned for us, and he put us all under condemnation. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world, he lived a perfect life for us, and he died a perfect substitutionary death for us. And so that someday when we stand before that great judge, and the books are open, and I use this illustration with them, there's going to be a screen there that is going to reveal everything you have ever thought and said and done. And that screen measures 41 million light years in diagonal measurement. And the whole universe is going to witness your stinking life. And all of its sins, all of your thoughts will be exposed. All of your words will be exposed. Not one thing will be missed. All of your motives and the intentions of your heart will be stripped naked to the entire universe and to a holy God that is sitting there whose holiness is so great that anything without divine restraint would burst into flames in the presence of that holiness. Amen. And you will be stripped naked by the books. It's called the books were opened and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. After your screen has shown what you deserve, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say in the audible presence of the entire universe, He is mine. She is mine. I died for her. Check the book of life. 
And they'll check the book of life and they're going to find your name. And I want to tell you something, brethren. That screen is going to go empty because it's all going to be paid for by the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then in that screen is going to be filled with absolute perfect righteousness that he fulfilled by his perfect life. And God, the great judge of all, is going to look at this great transformation that's taking place legally there for a pronouncement to magnify his glory. He's going to say, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because all he's going to see is the absolute perfect righteousness of the Son of God applied to your account. That is justification. That is just too good to tell you about. I don't even know how to tell you. That's just too good to... But it is true. Amen. It tells me so. Can you live for him? This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Man, you go for an interview. You people prepare. You type up this perfect resume. And you get it checked and double checked and triple checked. You don't want any spelling errors. You want it formatted just right. You want to get your best information. You're worried so much about an interview. Brethren, we're going to an interview. What have you done with your life? The words will be formed this way. For what is your life? And we worry about an interview. But we don't worry much about this meeting with God. And all that's going to be revealed. But I want to tell tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible tells me to warn you with fear. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Right. He said it. I believe it. So I ought to do that too. And brethren, he's moving me greatly that way. He's showing me the terror of the Lord from his word and from thinking about this spinning little ball that's, that's here that's it's about to come to an end. But he also is showing me that there's a Savior, and I want to tell you about him, as I just did. You're going to be given the absolute perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will stand up and there is no power in heaven or on earth that can hinder him as your mediator. He will stand there and Satan's going to be cowering. He will stand there and all the demons will be howling and screaming in fear because it's their time. Their time has come and the Son of God is about to vanquish all of his foes and he'll take you into the glorious presence of God, not just as a sinner yanked out of the fire, but as righteous as a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, an heir of God. You're a son. Come into my presence. You're a son. Can you serve him? Can you live for him? Can you love him? The Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul would say this, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Philippians 3, 7. Yea, doubtless... Don't doubt this. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. If anyone here is angry at me for ridiculing anything in life, whether it's bodily exercise, education, money, working on the yard, whatever, then get angry with Paul. Because Paul said, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And he lists all of his educational attainments in the previous verses. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things, Philippians 3.8, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom 
I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, amen, that I may win Christ. That is our goal. And brethren, here's the point. I know that you can read that. If you're a child of God, you can read that and hear me read it, and you know in your heart that that is one of the truest statements, most glorious expressions of a man who's right with God that you've ever read, and that you have in your heart the desire to be like that, I hope. If there isn't a desire to be like that, examine yourselves to make sure that you're not a reprobate. Right. But there should be a desire to be that right there in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. But the question is, I don't feel like that. I'm not as close to the Lord as Paul. I can't say those kind of words yet. I want to tell, that's what I'm preaching for this morning. And there isn't a secret recipe. It's to humble yourself underneath the mighty hand of God and pursue Him. Right. Philippians 3 8. It's to go out, it's to do it right now in your heart saying, that's what I want. I want to be a female version of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8. And I want nothing less than that. And I'm going to sell my soul for it. Yes. Sell your soul. I counted all things loss. But for the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Go for that. Do not be content with anything in your life. Not education. Not a new house. Not a new car. Not anything except Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. And pursue it. And pray for it. And confess your sins of a cold heart. And beg God for it. And pray for and read for it. He will come to you and give you that. Amen. There is nothing else. There is nothing else. I know all about your feelings. I've had my lean soul for plenty of years. There's only one place to go. And that's to flee to the rock that is in Christ Jesus, right. and to cast your hope upon Him entirely and completely. And if you are not, if you can't say Philippians 3, 8 with a full heart and fervent heart, and that truly everything is lost for you and you could lose it all, and it wouldn't change a thing because you still have Christ, if you're not there yet, then seek it. Seek it with all your heart. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what else I preach to you if you are not willing to do that. Because your life is nothing. The Bible tells me that God created man, man sinned, man's going to be judged, man's going to go to an eternal lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. And there is a Savior, Jesus Christ. And the only hope of knowing that Savior is Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. It's counting all things but dung. And my language is not any worse than the Apostle Paul's in Philippians 3.8. But it's all glorifying Jesus Christ. Because in comparison to Jesus Christ, all is dung. And brethren, I am so I am very worried. And for all those of you for those of you who pray for me, I am very worried because in this congregation there are people that sit and hear messages like this and it's in one ear and out the other. This message is no good because of the speaker. I'm sorry that you have this speaker. This message is the truth of God to you and I bring it to you. Amen. But for you to sit there and just to be enduring this sermon, I fear for your soul in the day when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't want to humble yourself and change your appearance, then God be magnified, because he will be. I am sick of the the confusion that reigns in our world. Everybody's silent about what's coming. No one talks about it. No one worries about it. No one's warning about it, so I'm warning you. 
Why isn't anyone warning about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come? When the Apostle Paul got a moment to speak in front of Felix, what do you think he talked about? The great accomplishments of the Roman army? He reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, and he reasoned so well about those things that Felix trembled. That's what I'm trying to do for you. What confuses you? What confuses you about this issue? Is it your job? What's confusing you? What is your life? What confuses you in answering that? Your job? Your tiredness? If you're too tired this morning, it's your fault. Why didn't you go to bed last night at 6 o'clock? Why didn't you drink a liter of Mountain Dew before you got here this morning? Anything! So that you could be focused on the most important project of your life. And that's to find and meet and know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no excuse. What confuses you? Your children? Their education, your yard, your appearance, home decorating, a great body, a happy marriage. Are you kidding me? Money, pleasure, retirement, sleep and rest, a hobby, projects, sweet memories. Don't let anything confuse you. There's only one thing to be thinking about. We must be single-minded, brethren. Single-minded. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And that single mind must be about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to gain the whole world, you're confused with a few things. What if you were to get it all and get your arms around it all? The whole world. Baby, I've got it all. The whole world. And Jesus said, but I take your soul in judgment. What has it profited you? Now, the Lord was pretty extreme in his language, wasn't he? I love him for it. And he's made me the same way. What if you were to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Is it a worthwhile exchange? That's what he said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I read these words in verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, I want to tell you the truth about life. What is your life? Here's the truth. Our light affliction, you want to sell yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ? Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, that's how long your life is, a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. (coughs) You have a light affliction, light, an ounce. Okay, you've really convinced me all the problems in your life are worth an ounce. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, but you only got to hold that ounce for a moment because life is as short as a weaver's shuttle. Do you understand what this verse is telling you? Okay, you've got me up there to an ounce, but you only have to hold that ounce for a moment. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us. How does it work for you? Because if you're willing to sell your soul, there is eternal life to pay for you. It'll be paid to you if you're willing to sell your soul for Christ. How do you sell your soul for Christ? Jesus would say, if a man will lose his life for my sake, he shall find it. And if a man tries to save his life, he'll lose it. It worketh for you if you will sell your life, if you'll give your life up for Jesus Christ and bear the light affliction of giving up a few things, you know, less manicuring of the lawn, a few less minutes at work every day, a few more hours in Bible reading every day, 
If you are to bear that light affliction for a moment, it works for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's far more exceeding. Well, how do we say exceeding? That's a weight that breaks the scale. If it's an exceeding weight, what kind of a weight is it? It exceeds the scale. You, the scale of what? The scale of your measuring capacity, not God's. The scale of your measuring capacity, it is a weight that is a weight of glory, a weight of blessing, a weight of pleasure that is greater than anything you could imagine. And do you know how long it lasts? According to the text, eternal. Do you like 2 Corinthians 4.17? It's glorious. I, te- I preached to you the truth this morning. Do you want to, do you want to pay? This is the, this is the greatest economic secret that's ever been given. Pay an ounce for one second and you get a weight that you can't even measure for eternity. Amen. And most men do not make the choice because Jesus offered that choice to the, to the elect and he said though about it, he said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life. That's the light affliction, and few there be that find it. Amen. Few there be that find it. Wide is the gate, or, or uh, open is the gate, and wide is the way that leads unto destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. How do we, how do we handle, how do we do this, Second Corinthians 4.17, this exciting trade? This exciting trade. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We get our mind, if you can see it, ah, that's it. If you can see it, you shouldn't be thinking about it very much. If you can't see it, you can't see heaven. You can't see that weight. You can't see Jesus. That's what you ought to be thinking about. We, we make this little transfer by putting our focus on the things we can't see and ignoring the things that we can see. Abraham and all of his sons did that. They, they came into Canaan, and they knew that Canaan wasn't theirs. And they didn't care. It says that they were strangers and pilgrims. That means they lived in tents. They never built a city, never built an established place in the land of Canaan because their eyes were on heaven. They were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Are you a stranger here? I hope that you are a stranger here. And all these people that are getting settled down on earth, you despise them. And you're not going to get settled here because you have no lasting existence here. Yours is in heaven. Did you know the Bible tells you that you can set your affection on things above? Right. What does that mean? That means you control your love. Set your affection on things above. Choose to love God. Choose to love Jesus. Am I being simple? Yes, I know I am. Choose to love God. Choose to love Jesus. Choose to prefer heaven. Choose to love righteousness. If you'll make that choice, an eternal and exceeding weight of glory waits for you. I'm going to give you a help. I hope it's a help. What is the purpose, the program, and the priority of your marriage? I'm going to get two sermons into one in one final couple closing minutes. 
Watch. What is the purpose of your marriage? The purpose of your marriage is for a man and a woman to come together in the companionship that God ordained to be heirs together of the grace of life. That marriage is to be looking at things that are not seen, not at things that are seen. Every time a husband and a wife start looking at the things that are seen, they both get discouraged and disappointed with each other. And it's always going to be that way because in marriage, guess what? what is a marriage? Two sinners live together. And because of that, they're always going to disappoint each other. But if those two sinners will come together as heirs together of the grace of life and together be pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest love for each other will result because they're both going to have their first love in the proper place. And then they will properly love each other. And all of a sudden, the things seen just kind of float away because I have this woman or I have this husband who loves God as much as I do and who's helping me remain a stranger and a pilgrim in this world on that road to heaven. I exhort everyone that's married here this morning to make your marriage a spiritual relation, a spiritual companionship, a spiritual contract between the two of you to seek Christ together. Yes, she probably does more cooking. You probably do more working outside of the house. All of those little details are very unimportant. But is your working relationship primarily finding Christ? In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, I have a goal, and that is that I might be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of Christ. And he said he keeps pressing toward that mark. I'm telling you how you can press toward it with the help of your spouse. Do you know what one of the pictures I see for the marriages in this church, if God would bless us to have true marriages, is when the first spouse lies in the bed and is going to meet Jesus Christ. And the other spouse is not running around worrying about plots, stones, wills, children, arrangements, or anything but is there holding their hand and looking in their eyes and they're both happy because they're going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. The first half of them is going. Brethren, we are all going there and we're going there fast. The Apostle Peter told men, and likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. That's the ultimate marriage right there. That's the ultimate scene in marriage. It's not the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is part of the vanity and vexation of life. The ultimate marriage is when two people are going to meet their judge, yet their savior, and their friend, and they're doing it as companions. One's taken a little bit sooner, but they're doing it together. And they love each other, but they love most of all the Lord Jesus Christ, who's taking one out of that room in his glorious chariot of fire, led by the angels. Marriage described by the Apostle Paul is 1 Corinthians 9, 5, leading about a sister. It's not Casablanca. Knowing God and glorying in Him is the greatest blessing that you can have in this life. Everything that God has done is that we can glory in Him. 
He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I could multiply that by uh, about ten verses that I've got here. We glory in God because of the atonement we've received, Romans 5.11. But now I'm closing right here, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I wanted to add an exhortation to your marriages at the end because God said it was not good for the man to be alone without sin. If it wasn't good for the man to be alone without sin, it certainly isn't good for him to be alone with it. And for a man to have a God-fearing spouse and for the two of them together to remind each other every single day, let's keep our eyes on things we can't see. Let's keep our eyes off of things we can see. Let's seek to fulfill Philippians 3.8 together. That's the ultimate marriage. And that's the only marriage that will ever make two people happy. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, According to my earnest expectation and my hope. Now, does that hope sound vague? He calls it his earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. There's, he's building you up in that 20th verse, that always, with great boldness, he wants to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in his body, whether he does it in a, in a life of activity or in, a, in death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For what is your life? Your life is hid and lost in the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. if your heart's in the right place. And to die is gain on top of that because you'll be with him forever. May the Lord bless you to know what your life is and to make it what it ought to be by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.